Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini-series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on the seventh episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is Tony Davis, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Inherent Group, 
a value-oriented hedge fund that invests across the capital structure and uses ESG factors to source and underwrite its investments. Prior to founding Inherent Group, Tony was co-founder, president, and portfolio manager at Anchorage Capital, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. Our conversation covers Tony's early career experience at Goldman Sachs, key lessons from 20 years at Anchorage Capital, and his retirement and subsequent philanthropic work in impact investing that led to the formation of Inherent Group. We then turn to his activities at Inherent, including his rationale for taking in outside capital, sourcing longs and shorts, incorporating E, S, and G factors in underwriting, quantifying sustainability, constructing the portfolio, and engaging with portfolio companies. We close with a few investment examples, potential opportunities in distressed debt, and tips for allocators researching ESG managers. To learn more about Tony's activities, visit InherentGroup.com. I recently got involved with the Alliance for Decision Education, an educational nonprofit dedicated to the belief that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. The Alliance is building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every middle and high school student's learning experience. I wish I had learned the science of decision-making back then, and I'm keen to spread the word and do my part so that my kids and yours learn to make better decisions throughout their lives. To learn more and join me in this movement, visit allianceforddecisioneducation.org. That's allianceforddecisioneducation.org. Please enjoy my conversation with Tony Davis in this seventh episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Tony, great to see you, man. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Why don't we just start at the very beginning of your path and your initial interest in investing? It wasn't really till I got to Wharton. I didn't grow up in a household where we talked about Wall Street at the breakfast table. It was all about education, get educated. And I went and studied engineering and physics, and I was about to take a seat for a PhD in biomedical engineering. And I had a change of heart at the last minute and joined a consulting firm as an analyst for two years. But after that, I went to Wharton and I was attracted to Wharton for a couple of reasons. One was the quantitative bent and brand of the institution. I think secondly, the Lauder Institute, which is a joint degree that they offer in international studies. But once I got there, of course, there was lots of talk of Wall Street. I remember the first time I went up to New York on an informational interview, and I took not the Amtrak, but the local transit to Penn Station, and then the subway down to Wall Street. I remember climbing the stairs of the subway and kind of stepping outside and just feeling the energy and the intensity and thinking, like, I want a piece of this. I want to be part of this. So that's kind of how the, you know, the initial interest was spawned. That informational interview was, in fact, with Goldman Sachs. And then I applied for a summer internship. And I was really humbled. I didn't get any of the interview slots that I had applied for. And I thought I was a little bit cocky. I guess I was doing well at Wharton. And I had graduated magna cum laude from BYU. At the time, you could take points and put them on one firm that you really wanted to interview with. So I'd taken all my points in a very risky move and put them on Goldman. And so I got the interview with Goldman. But I only made it to the wait list. And so all my friends had left for spring break, I remember, and I was still 
sweating and didn't know what I was going to do for the summer. And Goldman called and said, you know, if we give you the offer, you know, will you take it? And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course. <laughs> Walked through all you guys. So I took the summer job in the FIG group in banking. And I will say as an aside, that's probably the hardest I ever worked in my life. I do remember telling them in the interview, I think this might've gotten me the job. I said, I know you guys have a lot of smart people at Goldman and I think I'm smart, but there's lots of smart people. But one thing I know, no one's going to outwork me this summer. And I think I was true to my word on that. I worked very hard and was offered a job to come back to the FIG group and carried Chris Flowers bags and worked for Chris Cole and Peter Krause and really terrific people and learned a great deal from them. But I, I sort of figured out reasonably early on that I liked the analysis part more than the process or sales part of investment banking. So I was angling for an opportunity to move into one of the capital committing areas of the firm. And eventually they helped me to do that. And that's how I really got started. What did you learn in your time at Goldman that stayed with you since? I had a really great experience there. I mean, I worked with really smart people, very hardworking, very client focused, high integrity, and very competitive. And so I think all those things were great lessons to learn. Early in my career, I was asked to manage people. I kind of fell into this. It was right time, right place, because I moved up to the distress desk and for a year, a mobility program, so to the fixed income division, and they didn't really know what to do with me. So they put me at the end of the desk and asked me to look at utilities. So, you know, at that point, I don't think there had been a utility bankruptcy in two decades. And lo and behold, we had Enron and then we had Pacific Gas and Electric the first time around. And they were like, Davis, get over here. We need your help. And I had a great boss, John Savitz, who really tried to put his people first. And so every time, you know, we were advising the firm on their exposures, commodity exposures out of Aaron and counterparty exposures. And anytime we had to meet with someone senior or the CFO, he would always bring me along and let me be the one to present. So I got introduced to some of the senior folks of the firm early on, and we were able to navigate that well and make money off the desk. And that's really what gave me an opportunity to take on a leadership role there eventually. I mean, as it as happens at Goldman, especially back then, uh, you know, all the senior guys kept leaving to start their own funds. <laughs> at one point, they looked around and they were like, can you keep an eye on this thing while we find someone to run it? And they went out and interviewed people to try to find someone. And in the end, they asked me and another guy to co-manage the distressed bond desk there. I think we were doing a reasonably good job, but I also found out after the fact that everyone else was asking three times what they were paying me to come in and take the job. So that's the good and the bad of Goldman, I guess. And then what was it that sparked your departure to start Anchorage at the time? It was, as I said, I really enjoyed the people in you know, a lot of aspects of that job. It was an offer that was really too good to pass up. A colleague of mine was running the bank debt business, and he had come up through the ranks as a salesperson and a trader and then ran that business, ran risk. And I was on the distressed bond desk, more focused on bonds and capital structure ARB and he had been in touch with Reservoir Capital, Dan Stern, about seeding opportunity and came to me and asked if I wanted to be part of it. And the upside downside was really too compelling to pass up. I and mean, we never imagined it would turn in and become what it did. Sometimes you can see people early on definitely want to have their own thing and definitely are leaving. That wasn't the case for me. It was more that it was an opportunity that I felt like I kind of had to go pursue. 
I'm sure that the Anchorage could be a whole show in and of itself, that experience over, you know, whatever it was, close to 20 years. But why don't we just touch on some of the key things you learned at Anchorage that you sort of embraced and didn't know at the time when you started? There are a few big lessons. I mean, one, we approached it as a business. I think a lot of people start funds and think about like, I'm smarter than everyone else. I'm going to put up better numbers. But I think our approach was to say, really focus on the customer, the client. What do they want? What of their needs are we solving and design products around that, have multiple products so that it creates some stability of revenues to the GP and management company and allows us to invest in the business and infrastructure and people over time. From an investing standpoint, the biggest sort of takeaway was just make sure that you're in a position to go on offense when the markets are under pressure. And so that's really informed how we think about managing the portfolio risk here at Inherent as well. But you want to make sure when the market's offering really, really good risk return, you want to be in a position to buy it. And when it's not, throttle back. Don't try to take on bad risk to put up great numbers and make sure you don't use leverage unless it's really well thought out and termed out, et cetera. Clearly, I think the lesson that was hammered home too is you're only as good as your people in this business. So how do you attract and retain great people? We have just a wonderful team. They continue to have a great team at Anchorage. I'd say those are some of the key lessons that stuck with me. So a couple of years ago, I guess now, you decide to leave. And tell me about that process after you leave how that led to your interest in what you're doing today. I had reached a point in my life and career where it wasn't about the money. And I wanted to feel like I was contributing in some way to issues that are important to me, climate, inequality. And I frankly wasn't sure how I was going to do that, but I felt like I needed to go figure that out. And so I announced I was leaving Anchorage, but it was a one-year transition. And for the first six months, I was actually quite busy talking to investors and transitioning responsibilities internally. And for the second six months, frankly, I had a lot of time on my hands. It was amazing how quickly that happened, right? You went from being critical to not as critical reasonably quickly. So I had some time on my hands. I was in London because I had moved over to build out our European business. And I had a chance to spend time with some of the early pioneers in this space. So Sir Ronnie Cohen on impact investing and social impact bonds, outcomes-based payment models, David Blood on ESG, a classmate of mine from Wharton, Matt Christensen, runs Responsible Investment at OXA. He introduced me to folks like Bridges Ventures. And so I started meeting people that were investors in really addressing these issues through their investment activities, and the light bulb went off for me. And I probably at that time was thinking more I was going to head towards public service or the not-for-profit world, but all of a sudden I realized, hey, I can do what I love doing, investing, and also play a part or be part of the conversation on how we address some of these challenges that we face. So that was kind of the light bulb moment. And initially it started with Inherent as a family office. And I'd say day one, it was getting a little bit more sorted out in terms of the foundation and how to really think about being effective in our foundation activities and with more traditional impact investing. Talk a little bit about the differences that you saw then and then going forward in what you'll do in the foundation and then where you evolved into forming Inherent as a business. Yeah. So again, it was a journey. Like We didn't know exactly what we were going to do, but we knew we wanted sustainability to be at the core of all of our activities. So with the foundation initially, it was 
two things. One, getting smarter about how we measured the impact or the social return on investment from our grant making and tracking that. What are the key KPIs that we're tracking to make sure our dollars are being put to work effectively? And then secondly, the big focus was how do we use the left-hand side of the balance sheet, the endowment, in a way that actually promotes and is aligned with our mission as a foundation? And I've never understood in the foundation space, you know, people spend so much time programmatically on the 5% that they put out each year, which is, of course, incredibly important. But the other 100% of their assets are sitting on the left-hand side of the balance sheet and sometimes being deployed in a way they're totally antithetical to what the mission is. That's probably not the majority of cases, but oftentimes just not being used effectively. And so we decided that we had a goal to have all of our assets be impact aligned. And so what that's meant over time, it's a more defensive portfolio, just given that it's the foundation, but it's bank debt in a healthcare analytics company. It's, we put money into a firm that's providing financing solutions for mid-market renewables and energy efficiency. We've invested in funds like Ecosystem Integrity Partners or KKR Impact. We've invested equity, but market rate of return equity into social entrepreneurs. For example, one terrific company called catchafire.org and the entrepreneur there, founder Rachel Chung, that is connecting high-skilled volunteers with not-for-profits that need their help and creating a ton of value for them in the process. So we started to be much more flexible in terms of how we use the whole endowment, and we also pursued so-called blended finance opportunities. So from some of the things we learned from Sir Ronnie Cohen about how to think about outcomes-based payment models, we led a financing for a not-for-profit coding boot camp in Queens that focused on that population that really wasn't, the, the for-profit coding boot camps weren't accessible to them. These were non-college grads, median income of $18,000 a year that over nine months would learn iOS, HTML, JavaScript, and after nine months would graduate and be placed making $85,000 and higher. Extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it in job training. We went to Juke, who founded and runs Pursuit.org, and said, you know, how do you scale this? And he said, look, I got to pass the hat every time for philanthropy. So we came up with a model where we lent them money to increase their capacity. And the repayment plan was we asked students only if we placed them in high-paying jobs to pay a portion of their income back into the system to allow us to continue scaling. So I think there are these really interesting models in terms of how we can approach addressing social challenges, sometimes grant making and a pure not-for-profit is the best way to do it. I sit on the board of Achievement First, a charter management organization that's high performing. I sit on the board of Ceres, which is a convener of large capital allocators and large corporates on issues of climate. They're wonderful organizations that rely on grant money. We were very fortunate and honored to be part of just recently Next Street put together a program to help CARES Act PPP dollars get into the hands of small minority-owned businesses in New York City because we just felt like the money wasn't getting to them. So we were able to be part of the grant money that helped that occur. So the foundation, I think, is we're really proud of how we've used our capital and been thoughtful about it. If you're investing the assets out of your balance sheet into these things that also serve the core of the foundation, others would make the case, oh, that's a narrow investable universe. So you're sacrificing return that you could then use to make more grants on the liability side. How have you thought about that holistic math? So most of the endowment 
is in what I would call MRI, mission-related investments, where we expect, they're aligned with our mission, but we expect commercial rates of return. And then there's the grant making, which is 100% concessionary. It's this in-between space that people get hung up on. Like I'm investing in something that I think has a great social impact, but for the risk I'm taking, I'm earning 300 basis points less than what market rate of return risk would be. And I think that some of those organizations are just more efficient in allocating capital and tackling social challenges than if you asked a pure, purely nonprofit to do it or you asked a government program to do it. And so we try to kind of do that calculus in our minds and just say, look, for the 300 basis points that we're giving up is the social return so great that this makes sense for us? And often the case is yes. I mean, relative to a pure grant, even if you can just get the capital back and recycle it and use it again. And there's also something about those blended finance models that also I think there's a governor accountability effect that there is an expectation of return of capital, let's say. And so it does sometimes cause the receiving organization to have to be a little bit more aware, perhaps, of their expenses and efficiency and how they use that capital. All right, let's turn to the impact side and then we'll get into the business. The impact stuff was really all over the map in the beginning in terms of sectors that we would focus on, in terms of size of deal from seed deals to late stage growth to small private equity. Where it's kind of gotten to over time is that it's been much more focused primarily, I would say, on SDGs 347, so health, education, decarbonization, and late stage growth, small private equity. And that's been rewarding in a lot of ways. One, we've been able to get much smarter on these issue areas. Two, we've met some really wonderful entrepreneurs along the way and been able to help them scale their businesses and have both good financial outcomes as well as good impact outcomes. And it's actually been a portfolio that's performed very well, too, from a financial perspective. So that's what we've been doing on the impact side of things. And both of those activities, the foundation and the impact investing, have all been with internal capital. What happened then is we were really enjoying what we were doing, but I was feeling a little bit frustrated just at the scale of the impact that we were having. And when you look at just the magnitude of these issues, you really need the capital markets to encourage these behaviors. You really need large corporates to take up these challenges. And working with the capital markets and working with large corporates is what I had done at Goldman and at Anchorage. And so we started thinking more about an ESG integrated product and for the first time taking outside capital and how we would integrate ESG into our investment process, sourcing, underwriting, and engagement. And we wanted to be you know, part of that conversation. And you know, the scale of problems, I mean, I like this one statistic, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, tells us that we need $2 trillion a year, at least, invested in clean energy systems to have a chance of staying below 1.5 degrees C of warming. So you know, to allocate $2 trillion of capitals and do it efficiently, let's hope it's not government. Let's hope that we can get the capital markets, we put a price on carbon and we get the capital markets helping us right, to allocate that capital. And so that's what it gets me really excited. I think other externalities are going to be priced over time and we can get capital more efficiently allocated and we can start to really address at scale some of these issues. So as you started thinking about bringing in external capital and 
knowing everything you know about what this means in terms of a business and an investment strategy, where did you start? First, again, we wanted to make sure we were aligned with our mission, our values, like, you know, what's our North Star here? So I'd say, number one, it's very clear to us that as an investment organization, we have to put up great numbers because otherwise we're talking about these things, but we need to show great numbers. Our two big goals as an organization are to show that when you incorporate ESG into your investment process in a thoughtful way, it leads to better investment outcomes. And as you probably know, there's still a lot of folks who the moment they hear ESG think concessionary. And we just don't think that. We think it makes us better investors. And we want to demonstrate that. And hopefully by demonstrating that, encourage more capital into the space. And the second big goal is to show corporates that when they lead on ESG integration, they can lower their cost of capital. And the basic rationale of that is you have two companies doing exactly the same one, but one leads on ESG and one doesn't. You're willing to pay more for the cash flows of the one that leads on ESG because those cash flows are less risky. They're less volatile. And if we can help companies to sort of internalize this message and believe it, then instead of folks like us and others begging them over the head to incorporate ESG, they'll just see it in their self-interest to go out and lead on these issues so they can lower their cost of capital. So those are the guiding lights, if you will, of everything we do. And then we had to think about all the things about you know, how do you integrate ESG into our investment process? How do we staff appropriately? What is the world of alternative investments look like today? Where are going to be the investors for this kind of product? All those things that you would imagine. But it started with aligning on mission and goals. As you started to tackle each of those for inherent the business, why don't you start with the investment strategy piece in that? You've trafficked in, obviously, in credit and equity, in privates, with your own stuff and some earlier. What product did you decide to put out and bring to market? We led with a product that is across the capital structure, along and short. We wanted to be able to go where we saw the best risk reward. I mean, I think another one of the lessons you talked about from Anchorage, we were, I think, very good at being able to invest across the credit spectrum from distress to IG, across the capital structure, from equity through bank debt, and across geographies. And we were always asking ourselves, where are we seeing the best risk reward today? And so we wanted to have that flexibility. The other thing that we designed it to be able to do is to be, you know, in moments like coming to this year, we had very little net exposure, but we want to be able to and have communicated to our investors that when things are really for sale, we're going to get much longer. So that ability and flexibility to get long when we feel like risk is really on sale was a key design element. The other I'd say is really time. There's a time arbitrage perhaps in the markets today. I think if you're trying to compete quarterly against the machines, that's a tough place to be. So you need to be able to take a longer term view. And so we structured it so that the majority of our capital is longer term capital. And in exchange for that, what we offered was lower fees, a hurdle, and we pay ourselves at the end of three years. We really want to make sure in terms of core values, LP alignment is one, two, and three. And so we felt like that would better align us with our LPs. And then, you know, the other thing that we did was to set aside a majority of the economics for the team. We really wanted it to feel like the analysts to feel like they were owners and to think long-term. And one way to do that is to that the economics are there for them to benefit from. I think maybe one great way to get in this will be to start walking through the investment process. And you know, as you're talking about being long and short, 
immediately I start thinking about, oh, you're going to be long all these great companies doing good things and you're going to be short all the bad companies from that ESG lens. I'm not sure if that's exactly how you thought about it. So why don't, why don't you just start taking me through maybe from just sourcing and we'll walk right through of what are you looking for in longs and what are you looking for in shorts? So our investable universe is two primary areas. So one, I'd say each of our analysts is covering one or more or subsectors of the SDGs. And so we're constantly mining decarbonization, electrification of transport, value-based reimbursements in healthcare, water scarcity, healthy foods, financial inclusion, you know, broadband access, and sort of developing market. We're constantly mining these themes for longs and for shorts. And I like this description of the sustainable development goals as the strategic plan for the planet, which I believe. And if you believe that, there's just going to be over many, many years a tailwind to invest in these SDG-aligned areas. And conversely, if you're shorting, a headwind. The other area where we source primarily is in what I think more traditionally as special situations or stress, distress, credit opportunities. But this is looking for complexity, for forced selling, for situations where we can get involved and hopefully extract some excess return for the risk that we're taking. And in those instances, and in the SDG aligned businesses, we're really then relying on ESG as part of our underwriting framework. So you're moving now from sourcing and our investment universe into underwriting. So the first thing I'll say is we do everything that we did before at Anchorage and at King Street and at Goldman, et cetera. So we're not shortchanging any of the fundamental work that we've done before, but we just add to it this ESG line of inquiry, which we think helps us identify other risks and from time to time opportunities that might not be apparent if we didn't focus on them. So just quickly to maybe take you through that framework where every company that we look at, we're assessing governance and you can look at a ton of different things in governance, but I'd say the big ones that we look for are, is there true independence on the board? Not just in name independence, but are there directors that are acting as independent? Is there diversity on the board? Again, not because it's the right thing to do because it's the right business thing to do. It leads to better risk management. It leads to better capital allocation. We spend a lot of time on executive compensation. What are the incentives of the executive team? How is the compensation designed? I won't get into the details of TSR versus economic value add, but how much risk and over what term are they being compensated for their performance? And you might, for example, want a company taking more risk if you own the equity and less risk if you own the credit. It depends where you are in the capital structure. If it's credit, we'll spend time thinking about the sponsor and what that history of that sponsor is in terms of credit, friendly or unfriendly actions. We'll look at related party transactions, which would be a big red flag, for example. So that's governance. On climate, which would be the next area that we focus on, we'll look at both physical and transition risks. Physical risks tend to be more of an issue for industries that have a lot of fixed assets, think real estate or agriculture, but you know, increasingly for companies that have supply chains in flood zones or high fire risk areas, it can be an issue that we need to focus on. But the main analysis there is really climate transition and thinking about the way that we approach that is one simple question. What would a $100 per ton price on carbon do to the unit economics of this business? So you first have to understand what their scope one and two emissions are, which is reasonably straightforward. Scope three is much harder to do, which is what the emissions are associated with their product once it's out into the universe. And just to clarify that, walk me through what scope and one and two is, because I'm not familiar with it. So scope one are emissions that are emitted as part of your process, your production process. Scope two are emissions that are emitted by 
the electricity that you consume in your process. Scope three is everything else. But you get these bizarre effects where on scope one and two, for example, Tesla has the same or even more emissions per unit volume than do GM and Ford. But obviously, if you include scope three, they're a huge winner in a $100 per ton carbon price environment. So we think through what the impacts of pricing carbon is. And then the next level of that analysis is like how much elasticity is there in pricing? How much that can you pass it to your customers? Are there substitutes? And then, especially in some of these more highly emittive industries, thinking about what does it do to cost curves? Because we're still going to need cement. We're still going to need aluminum. But who are the folks that are doing it in the most carbon efficient way and efficient way? And does it change the cost curve? So, so there's a carbon kind of climate analysis. Third is us looking into culture. And I'll say on that topic, if you think about the history of ESG, it really started with G and people understanding that good governance led to better returns over time. More recently, I'd say there's an appreciation for E, like environmental risks and opportunities. I think in this current moment of COVID, S is going to get its day in the sun. How do you take care of your people? What have you done? Even more broadly, the role of business and society is being questioned. I mean, you see the polls around how many Americans believe in capitalism at this point, and those numbers are declining. So I think you want to be able to say, my business is good for society. And sometimes it's not as clear. So for example, we have an investment in a especially chemical company. But in those instances, you want to make sure the way you're conducting yourself, you're taking care of your employees. And in this time, what does that mean? It means communicating transparently, means furloughing them if possible with benefits. It means thinking about paid leave, paid parental leave, all of these things. And I think that creates and engenders real loyalty among the employees over time. You attract and retain higher quality talent. You get better productivity out of that talent. We have a series of culture questions that we ask senior management. We ask recently departed employees. Of course, we look at Glassdoor. If it's a company that has public data sets, say an industrial, we'll look at health and safety data. But we're really trying to understand what's the DNA of the company. Do they take care of their people? Is it a culture of operational excellence and risk management? And that's what you're trying to get at in that kind of line of inquiry. How do you blend a traditional DCF? You're looking at cash flow, you're projecting out the model for three to five years or whatever it is. And then these factors where, you know, on the emissions, you could quantify it. If you say we're going to price carbon on the S, maybe it's a little bit harder. How do you actually do that? Well, just as an aside, I mean, one of the organizations we support, the Center for Sustainable Business at Stern, is really tackling this issue of how do you quantify the benefits of sustainability? Because I would argue CEOs got the message because it was great for external relations and managing their people. COOs view it as an opportunity to really continue to push operational excellence and improve productivity, reduce costs. CFOs, maybe you're still getting the message. And there are different ways, of course, that these things manifest themselves over time in your financial statements. Higher productivity, having an employee workforce that's engaged will result in better revenue productivity and better expense management over time. We often make the argument around cost of capital, and I guess the way that you would integrate that into your financial analysis is to lower your discount rate for a company that you think is leading on these issues. But it's hard to distill this into a single number. People do try to come up with frameworks and do that. I think that's part of the opportunity for driving alpha still. Even the ratings agencies themselves often don't agree 
on whether a company's a good ESG company or a bad ESG company. I mean, just to use the Tesla example, some really like them because they're electric vehicles. Some really don't because of governance and work labor practices and human rights abuse allegations in the cobalt supply chain. So it's more of like, how do you take all of these inputs for us and just be aware of them and think about them in terms of the risk reward framework? And are we getting compensated for the risk that we're taking? It's rarely like a go, no go decision. It's more, are we getting compensated for the risk that we're taking? There's a lot of noise around what is a good company. There are indexes and things like that. What available data or information is in the market that you find useful in your analysis? There's a lot of good data on governance, and there's increasingly good data from CDP, True Cost, and others on the environmental side. And I think we talked about the challenges around Scope 3. That is an issue in the data today, but people are trying to figure out ways to address that. Social is much more difficult today. Let's start with the fact that the data is self-reported, unaudited, and stale by the time you get it from most corporates. So I think that's going to improve. This mandatory disclosures are going to improve. Different frameworks for taking that data then and figuring out how to use it in a useful way are going to improve. But for now, it's early days. I think you have to do your own work. And we're able to do that because we run a small concentrated portfolio. It's a much more challenging problem, frankly, for very large allocators with hundreds of internal positions, hundreds of potentially of external positions or many managers externally. How do they roll it all up into a dashboard that's informative and relevant for their investment committee? It's not easy. You work through that process. You're making whatever decisions you are. What does your portfolio look like? So we target 15 longs. We want to be concentrated we think that's a way to sort of generate alpha over time. And also it allows us to really engage meaningfully with the companies. We think about risk on the long side in our portfolio in three buckets, primarily valuation risk, which can be distressed or equity, but it's where you're taking fundamentally a view on the valuation of a company, total return credit, which is credit where there's both a carry component as well as a capital return component where we're expecting effectively the spread to tighten over time, and then low LTV credit. So those are the three buckets, but the portfolio has been moving pretty rapidly. We really were mostly equity in that valuation bucket and taking it down in January and Feb as we reached price targets and some names, but then as we got worried about the pandemic, we had very little total return credit because we just weren't seeing value in total return credit. But we quickly went in March and April to that being by far our largest allocation buying a lot of mostly investment grade that had reached kind of 99th percentile in terms of historical spreads and long duration. The, the curves really flattened and the long duration stuff we thought had a lot of total return upside. And also you were starting to trade significantly below par in some instances where you had bond floors. So I think as the year kind of progresses, I imagine that we're going to see a lot more stress and distressed. And so that IG, we've already started selling it, will become more stressed high yield bonds and leveraged loans. And the valuation bucket is going to be a lot more distressed. As you talked about the sourcing into those areas, is that how you're driving sort of where these, let's say IG or later on stress to stress opportunities are going to come from that you just kind of have a shopping list and you're monitoring certain companies and prices? Yes. We're always trying to maintain a shopping list of companies that we really like in equity and credit and waiting for them to reach our target levels. March was a little bit different. I mean, things were moving so fast. And we decided that we wanted to own investment grade as an asset class 
investment grade spreads had gotten out into the 400s, 99th percentile. But keep in mind, they were still tighter than they were in 08. We didn't expect the Fed to step in. The Fed had made it clear in the past that they didn't intend to buy corporate paper. But we felt like you didn't have the leveraged unwind, the leveraged investor in NIG in particular, that CDO unwind that was going to create continued for selling. So we felt like it was really good risk return and started to step in. And we were buying, I mean, we were moving very fast. So to go back to an earlier question, in that case, we were using some of the external rating agencies and ESG just to help us quickly get a sense for, is there a big issue we ought to be aware of? Because we, at a high level, we just really like the risk reward. So you touched on engagement and why don't you walk through what it is that you'll do with certain companies in your portfolio? So engagement has been, I think, the biggest surprise of all of this. Because when I started telling guys about our ideas, especially my private equity friends looked at me like I had two heads. They were like, we own these companies and we can't get them to focus on this stuff. Like, how are you going to come in and own two or 3% of a company and get them to focus on it? And that really bothered me at first. But what we've actually found is something very different. And I think the reason is just that the timeframes are so different. Private equity average hold is much shorter. So the incentives are different. And Investing in sustainability is often synonymous with a long-term orientation. Some of these things of investing in good processes and investing in your people pay off over multiple years. We found that companies have been very open to conversations with us. And I think some of it we get credit for because we're professional investors. We show up, we understand the unit economics of the business. We understand how they make money and we show up really thoughtfully and say, like, here are some non-ESG things we think you ought to be thinking about. And here are the two or three material ESG issues that we think actually are going to add to your business success over the long term. Part that we don't get credit for, I think, is there's a moment in time where the role of business in society is being questioned. Boards are putting pressure on their management teams to lead on these issues or to understand what they're doing. Some of that, I think, is just in response to social media and smartphones. You just can't get away anymore with being a bad actor. If you treat your people poorly, it's going to get out. If you're polluting the local river, it's going to get out. PwC had a report out, I don't know, maybe it was six months ago and said that a third of all the CEOs that had been laid off in the prior year, it was due to ethical lapses. You know, that's a bad day for your stock price. So boards, boards are pushing management teams to get ahead of these issues. And then we show up and we're not lobbing bombs in from the outside. We're going to eat our own cooking. We're invested. And we're thoughtful. And so actually what's happened is there's been a virtuous cycle or circle because we, we're now there's saying, oh, that's a great idea. You should talk to my head of HR. You should talk to my head of cyber. You should talk to my safety person. So we're actually getting access to a lot more people throughout the company, which helps us as we think about underwriting the risks. And it's been a range of topics. So it's been labor practices. It's been executive compensation. It's been, in one case, putting in scrubbers to deal with NOx and SOx emissions. It's been in a mortgage uh, servicer, improving loan modification and the customer experience. It's been diversity, but diversity really with a focus on how do we expand the talent pool that you can attract people from because you have a talent problem in your organization. So there's been a number of different issues where we've engaged with folks and we try to identify those up front. And then we report out to our investors over time on how we're performing and track our progress. How do you think about the short side of the book? So shorts, one, I would say we like to be able to short because we think being able to be market neutral you know, or closer to market neutral in certain, some periods of time is really valuable. So first, I'd say we look for companies that are overvalued. Generally, we're looking for shorter term catalysts, so 18 months and in. 
We find a lot of these companies that are on the wrong side of these SDGs and we think are facing operational headwinds. And then we find also companies where we think they're laggards on ESG. So I'll give you an example of one screen we run called the Cult of Personality screen. So we look for companies where the CEO has been in the seat 15 years or longer and where NSCI or Sustainalytics gives them a bottom quartile score on governance. And we've just seen over and over in our career that sometimes the CEO is there because they're just like that good. But oftentimes it becomes a personal fiefdom and ends up badly. Is there an example of one of your investments in the fund that's been really emblematic of what you were hoping to accomplish by opening up Doubtside Capital? Maybe without mentioning specific names, because that might cause a compliance issue for our people. But we did write a paper last year for the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance and talked about ESG as a tool and active management. We gave an example of a specialty chemical company that was all sides of the EPA on nitrous oxide, sulfur dioxide emissions. And it was our view that they should spend the money to comply with the EPA today and that that would put pressure on their smaller competitors to comply, further tightening supply demand, and that the price increase alone would cover their cost of capital investment. And they've moved down that path and have since released a sustainability report and become real leaders, I think, in and how they're approaching sustainability. But the kicker in all that was that they were trading at a 20% PE multiple discount to their closest competitor. And we felt like by fixing these issues and some others, they would be able to really trade in line with their closest comp, which has happened. So that's one example of really ESG integration. I think if you think about just ESG more thematically or SDGs, when you look at how energy has been performing, you know, any company with long dated reserves has been called into question, healthcare, my whole career, the trade in healthcare was buy the company with the highest moats that's earning excess rents and just go long. And I think that trades over because Medicare is going to go cash flow negative in the next few years. Healthcare spends approaching 20% of GDP. So we've been really focused on trying to go long companies that are actually solving problems in healthcare. And we've got a couple that are really performing really well right now because they're actually a cost-effective way for re remote medicine, for example, dealing with chronic care conditions. And conversely, companies that are have been earning excess rents, I'd say some of the physician practice management businesses where they've benefited from surprise billing, you know, that's now looks like it's going to be legislated away. So those are a couple quick examples. So we have this unique moment in time, I guess you'd call it, with the pandemic. And I'm curious what your perspectives are of what we're going to see on some of the things that come out of this and the impact on companies and markets. I think Satya Nadella said it best, where it's going to remote everything. So thinking about remote medicine, thinking about remote education, retail, of course, remote e-commerce, you're seeing acceleration of trends that I think were already in place. You know, I do think some of that will be here to stay. I am of the opinion, I remember from 9-11, thinking, would we live in New York City? Would we fly airplanes again? And as this passes, I think most of our behaviors will return, but some of these structural trends will have been accelerated. So we're trying to make sure we're on the right side of those. Frankly, many of those are aligned with these SDGs. So we already have a head start thinking through cheap, reliable, renewable energy, or thinking about electrification of transport, thinking about remote medicine, remote learning, and remote education are areas where we've already spent a lot of time. Given that you've play really across the capital markets, one of the questions that comes up with this period of time and this kind of sudden stop in the economy is how people will perceive share repurchases. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. So 
So I think share repurchase and dividends, I mean, if you eliminate those, you kind of take out one of the core tenets of capitalism, which is the ability for owners to redeploy their profits into more productive activities. So I don't see that going away anytime soon. That being said, the optics of it, I think are significant. And I think, again, to the point of, if you can't really articulate what the role of your business in society is and why you need to exist, and you can't really articulate how you've been taking care of your customers and your employees during this period of time. And if you've got CEO pay to median pay that is egregious, and if you've bought back a lot of shares recently and now are benefiting from government largesse, I don't think you'd be able to buy back shares just as an optics matter for some period of time. What are you most excited about going forward in terms of opportunities in the markets? I think there's going to continue to be a lot of volatility. And we think in the credit markets in particular, sadly, there's going to be an awful lot of distress. And so from an investment standpoint, we'll probably be spending a lot of time there. I would say putting on my ESG hat for a moment and what I'm hopeful for, maybe the silver lining in all this is that this was the crisis that we didn't see coming. Climate is the crisis that we know is coming. And maybe this will galvanize action, show us what's possible. We all agree how forcefully and with what scale governments can move to tackle a real challenge. That'd be my optimistic outlook. Usually when you talk about distressed opportunities, you don't really think about ESG in the same breath. They're almost opposite ends of the spectrum. How do you think about blending the two? Well, I'd say two. One is you know, the distress that we're going to be focused on are businesses that we think have a real role to play in society and can be long-term compounders and came into this either with over-leveraged balance sheets but are fundamentally good businesses or they're eye-of-the-storm companies that just happen to be in one of the industries that's being so affected by the shutdown. So trying to find those, I'll give you one example of a company that we really like right now, which is in the ambulatory surgery center business. And it's a leveraged company. We've been buying bank debt and bonds. It's a company where it's one of the few times in healthcare that payers and physicians and patients all agree that they're good because they lower costs, they improve outcomes, and patients prefer to go in an ambulatory setting than into a full service hospital, particularly today with covid circulating. So that's an example of the kind of thematic company that we'd like to own in Distressed. The other thing I would point out is there is an opportunity in a restructuring to hit the reset button. You have this moment in time where you can completely rethink governance and put in place best practices in terms of governance and executive compensation. You have a chance to reset on culture and really say, look, this is what we stand for. And so I do think there is a real opportunity in distress to lead on these issues. Of course, companies are very focused on cash flows and on survival and 100-day plans, as they should be. But it's also a real opportunity to reset the tone and put yourself in a position to lead on ESG, starting with governance. You've been in front of a lot of investors over the years, for sure. And I'm curious, in this space in particular, what tips would you give to allocators who are interested in looking at ESG and sustainable investing managers to kind of differentiate the ones that are likely to call it succeed on the mission-driven side of it, alongside of the capitalist side of it, and those that might be less likely to? Getting away from people and repeatable processes and those things. On the mission-driven side, I tell people really two things. One, 
what are they doing as a manager, as a management company to embrace ESG? Two, pull some investment committee memos at random and see how they talk about ESG. So on the manager side, we're trying to walk the walk. Half our investment team are women. We offset our carbon. We run a summer internship program for low-income minority kids. So we're trying to really live our principles. And then, you know, we've talked about how we integrate ESG into our investment process, which is manifest in uh, our investment committee memos and how we talk about ESG underwriting and thematic relevance. So those would be the two things that I would say. You can very quickly figure out if it's for real or for not. All right. I want to turn to some closing questions. Before I do that, I'm curious to circle back and ask you how you've been feeling about the scaled impact that you've been able to have from taking in outside capital when that was part of the reason for doing it in the first place? It's allowed us to have bigger positions and a larger voice. We thought about having impact both through our own direct investments in AUM, but also through trying to add to the conversation, be a thought leader, put out pieces like this one in the journal, Applied Corporate Finance, and really be a, a demonstration case of what is possible. So I think we are contributing. I think it takes a village. There are a lot of people that are working at this in different ways, which is great to see. I'm really excited to see how much new product is being developed. And I'd say alternatives were one of the last places to really have ESG product. And now we're seeing a lot of new product, which I think is terrific. Great. All right. Here we go. Some closing questions. First one, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I would say mountain biking or kite surfing. (laughs) Hopefully not both at the same time. What's your biggest pet peeve? Complaining. Let's get on with it. (laughs) How about your biggest investment pet peeve? People sort of talking about big returns and not giving you the data of over what period of time that was sustained and how much risk they were taking to get those returns. What do you do for self-growth? I've been working on better self-awareness, I think, and trying to meditate and work with a coach and just be more self-aware and get out of my own head and be more empathic and closer to people and nature. So it's a lot. I got a long ways to go. (laughs) What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? service. I grew up in a family. We didn't have much money, but despite that, my parents gave a lot of their time and financial resources to the community and to our church. All right, Tony, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? You know, I think I've like basically lived a pretty selfish existence. I did serve a mission for my church when I was 19 for the Mormon church. I don't practice anymore. It was a great period for me. I remember very fondly because you woke up every day thinking, you know, how can I be of service? And then I got back from that and immediately got very selfish. So focused on my education, my career, having fun. And you know, I wish I'd probably pivoted earlier to sustainability. I was in that old school kind of learn, earn, return mindset. I'm so much more impressed by the young people that I meet today that want to have an impact from day one of their careers. They want to make money, but they also want to figure out how they can improve the world around them as part of their daily life. Fantastic. Tony, thanks so much for taking the time. It was great. Thanks a lot, Ted. Do well. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.